And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is November the 13th. As opposed to a Friday the 13th, it's a Monday the 13th. This past Saturday was Veterans Day. Um, and I'll give you the, the national days on this date. World Orphans Day. National Hug and Musician Day. Symphonic Metal Day. Odd Socks Day. World Kindness Day. National Indian Indian Pudding Day. Human Animal Relationship Awareness Week. Transgender Awareness Week, as if we could forget them. National Young Readers Week. Lung Cancer Awareness Month. National Children's Month. World Vegan Month. National Peanut Butter Lovers Month. Movember. And somebody asked me what Movember was. Um... There's a, it's a whole month dedicated to uh, raising awareness for men's health. Uh, celebrate with a bold new look. It's recommended. Beard and a mustache. I've had a mustache since I was 14. National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Haven't had a beard, though. Um, National Native American Heritage Month. Manatee Awareness Month. National Pomegranate Month. National Novel Writing Month and National Adoption Month. Alrighty. Well, as I said, it's November 13th, 317th day of the year. 48 days remain till the year is over with. In 1002 AD, English King Ethelred II orders the killing of all Danes in England. Known today as the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. Um. He had a problem with the Vikings, who were, of course, uh, generally Danish. 1093, Battle of Alnwick, English victory over the Scots. Malcolm III of Scotland and his son Edward are killed. This took the wind out of the, uh, the Scottish side. 1160, Louis VII of France marries Adelia of Champagne. 1642, First English Civil War, Battle of Turnham Green. The Royalist forces withdrew in the face of the Parliamentarian Army and failed to take London, which was their intent. 1715, Jacobite Rising in Scotland, Battle of Sheriffmere. Forces of the Kingdom of Great Britain halt the Jacobite advance, although uh, the battle is basically inconclusive. 1775, American Revolutionary War. Patriot Revolutionary Forces of General Richard Montgomery occupy Montreal. 1833. The Great Meteor Storm of 1833 happened on this date. 1841. James Braid first sees a demonstration of animal magnetism by Charles LaFontaine, which leads to his study of the subject he eventually calls hypnotism. 1851. The Denny Party lands at Alky Point before moving to the other side of Elliott Bay to what would become Seattle. If they could see it today, they'd be so upset. 1864, American Civil War. Three-day Battle of Bull's Gap ends in a Union rout as Confederates under Major General John Breckinridge pursue them all the way to Strawberry Plains, Tennessee. 1887, Bloody Sunday Clashes in Central London. Um... For those that are not familiar with Bloody Sunday, an event took place in London, November 13th, 1887, when a crowd of marchers protesting about unemployment and the Irish Coercion Acts, <coughs> as well as demanding the release of the MP, Liam O'Brien, clashed with the Metropolitan Police. Now, this demonstration was organized by the National Democratic Federation and the Irish National League. There were violent clashes between the police and the demonstrators, many armed with iron bars and knives and pokers and gas pipes. According to a contemporary report, 400 were arrested and 
75 badly injured, including um, many of the police. Two police were stabbed and one protester was bayoneted. Um, okay, 1901. 1901, a lifeboat disaster took place on this date. Uh, it took place during what became known as the Great Storm, which caused havoc down the east coast of England and Scotland. The um, well, weather conditions on November 13 contributed to the disaster. A gale created uh, lashing rain in a heavy sea. Shortly after 11 p.m., flares were seen from a vessel on the Barber Sands. The cockle lightship fired distress signals to indicate a vessel in trouble. And the crew of the Caster and lifeboat Beecham were alerted and uh, an attempt was made to launch the lifeboat. Well, the heavy seas washed the boat off her skids and she was hauled back up the beach for another attempt. The uh, crew fought till two in the morning in the dark and cold with warp and tackle to get the lifeboat afloat. After the launch, most of the launching crew went home to change their clothes. James Haylett Sr., who'd been the assistant coxswain for many years, was now 78, remained on the watch despite being uh, wet through and through and having no food. He had uh, two sons, a son-in-law, and two grandsons in the boat. Well, he steered toward the stricken vessel, but sea conditions forced the boat back toward the beach, and she uh, struck the, feach, uh, the beach uh, bow first, about 50 yards from the launch point. And the heavy sea struck the starboard quarter and capsized the boat, breaking off the mast and trapping the crew underneath the boat. Now, the Beecham was a Norfolk and Suffolk class non-self-riding boat, 36 feet long, 10 and a half feet wide, and weighed about five tons, empty, and fully crewed and equipped with ballast tanks full. She needed 36 men to bring her ashore. Well, about three in the morning, Frederick Henry Haylett uh, returned to the lifeboat house after getting changed and alerted his grandfather, James Haylett, seemed to the cries coming from the boat. They land on where the Beecham lay keel up in the surf, and James Haylett managed to pull his son-in-law, Charles Knights, from the boat. Frederick Haylett uh, ran into the surf and pulled John Hubbard clear. Um, Haylett returned to the water and pulled his grandson, uh, Walter Haylett, clear. And unfortunately, these were the only survivors. Eight bodies were subsequently recovered at the scene, with another, that of uh, Charles Bonnie George, being washed away, only to be recovered months later. Uh, in the next, during the next year. Well, 1914, the Zeeland War, Berber tribesmen inflict the heaviest defeat of French forces in Morocco at the Battle of El Harry. 1916, World War I, Prime Minister of Australia, Billy Hughes, is expelled from the Labor Party over his support for conscription. 1917, World War I, beginning with the First Battle of Antigrappa. Also in Italy, it's known as the First Battle of the Piave. Austro-Hungarian armed forces, despite help from the German Alpen Corps and American superiority, will, uh, will fail their offensive against the Italian army, now led by its new chief of staff, Armando Diaz. 1918, World War I, Allied troops occupy Constantinople, the capital of the Ottoman Empire, which had been the Byzantine Empire. 1922, the U.S. Supreme Court opposed mandatory vac vaccinations for public school students and the uh, Juch versus King. 1927, the Holland Tunnel opens to traffic as the first Hudson River vehicle tunnel linking New Jersey to New York City. Uh, 1940, Walt Disney's animated musical film Fantasia is first released uh, at New York's Broadway Theater on the first night of a road show. 1941, World War II, aircraft carrier HMS Royal Ark, excuse me, Ark Royal, is torpedoed by U-81, sinks the following day. U-81 was a U-boat, for those who are not familiar with the designation. 1942, World War II, naval battle in Guadalcanal. U.S. and Japanese ships engaged in an intense, close-quarter surface naval engagement during the Guadalcanal campaign. 1947, the Soviet Union completes development of the AK-47, one of the first proper assault rifles. And unfortunately for the anti-gun lobby, they don't understand the designation assault rifle. They think anything that fires that has more than one round in the chamber 
such as a magazine-loaded weapon, is an assault rifle. Nothing could be further from the truth, but unfortunately, they don't want to be bothered with facts. 1950, General Carlos Delgado Chabald, president of Venezuela, is assassinated in Caracas. 1954, Great Britain defeats France to capture the first-ever Rugby League World Cup in Paris in front of about 30,000 spectators. 1956, Supreme Court of the U.S. declares Alabama laws requiring segregated buses illegal, which ended the Montgomery bus boycott. People make way too much out of race, gender. People are people. I mean, let's face it. 1966. In response to Fatah raids against Israelis near the West Bank border, Israel launches an attack on the village of Asuma. 1966, all Nippon Airways Flight 533 crashes into the Sito Inland Sea near Matsuyama Airport in Japan, killing 50 people. 1969, Vietnam War. Anti-war protesters in Washington, D.C. stage a symbolic march against death. And I've yet to see anything a march will take care of. 1970, Bahala Cyclone. 200, uh, well, 150 mile per hour cy- uh, tropical cyclone hits the densely populated Ganges Delta region of East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, killing an estimated half million people in one night. 1982. Ray Mancini defeats Duck Ku Kim in a boxing match held in Las Vegas. Kim's subsequent death leaves significant changes in the sport. 1982, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is dedicated in Washington, D.C. after a march to its site by thousands of Vietnam vet- uh, War veterans. 1985, the, Volcan- the volcano Nevado de Ruiz erupts and melts a glacier, causes a lehar or a volcanic mudslide that buries Amero, Colombia. Killed about 23,000 people. 1985, Xavier Suarez is sworn in as Miami's first Cuban-born mayor. 1989, Hans Adam II, the uh, present Prince of Liechtenstein, begins his reign on the death of his father. 1990, in, in Aramoana, New Zealand. David Gray shoots 13 people in a massacre before being tracked down and killed by police the next day. 1991. Republic of Karelia, an autonomous Republic of Russia, is formed from the former Karelian ASSR. Uh, uh, 1992. The High Court of Australia rules in Dietrich versus the Queen that although there is no absolute right to have Publicly funded counsel, in most circumstances, a judge should grant any request for an adjournment or a stay when an accused is unrepresented. 1993. Now, addressing that, you know, in in the U.S., you have a right to represent yourself. And, And in Texas especially, you're not supposed to be treated any differently than somebody represented by counsel. Don't let them kid you. That is a joke. 1993, China Northern Airlines Flight 6901 crashes on approach to Umki Diwapu International Airport in Urumqi, China. Killed 12 people. 1994, in a referendum, voters in Sweden decided to join the European Union. 1995, Mozambique becomes the first state to join the Commonwealth of Nations without having been part of a former British Empire. 1995, a truck bomb explodes outside a U.S.-operated Saudi Arabian National Guard training center in Riyadh, killing five Americans and two Indians. The group called itself the Islamic Movement for Change. Uh, Claimed responsibility. Of course, they never say what the change is, other than they want to be in charge. 1995, Nigeria Airways Flight 357 crashes at Kaduna International Airport in Kaduna, Nigeria. Killed 11 and injured 66. In 2000, Philippine House Speaker Manny Villar passes an article of impeachment against Philippine President Joseph Estrada. 
2001, War on Terror. And the first such act since World War II, President George W. Bush signs an executive order allowing military tribunals against foreigners suspected of connections to terrorist acts or planned acts in the U.S. 2002, Iraq uh, disarmament crisis. Iraq agrees to the terms of the U.N. Security Council Resolution of 1441. The... Um, It offered Iraq under Saddam Hussein a final opportunity to comply with its disarmament obligations that had been set out in several previous resolutions. And it provided, frankly, a justification for the subsequent U.S. invasion of Iraq. 2002, during the Prestige oil spill, a storm bursts a tank off the, of the oil tanker MV Prestige, which wasn't allowed to dock and sank uh, on November 19, 2002, off the coast of Galicia, spilled 63,000 metric tons of heavy fuel oil, more than the Exxon Valdez oil spill. 2012, a total solar eclipse occurs in parts of Australia and the South Pacific. 2013, Hawaii legalizes same-sex marriage. Also in 2013, four World, Trade, four World Trade Center officially opens. 2015, Islamic State operatives carry out a series of coordinated terrorist attacks in Paris, including suicide bombings, mass shootings, and a hostage crisis. Uh, they killed 130 people, making it the deadliest attack in France since World War II. And I guess I have to ask what the suicide bombers accomplished? Other than a lot of death and destruction to innocent people. All right. We've been talking about um, haunted asylums and hospitals and other institutions. We're going to talk about a few more of those today. The, um, you know, with Halloween having been uh, less than two weeks ago. Certainly, it's a timely topic. The um, we were talking about Asylum Forty Nine in our last show, and half of it's still a functioning facility, and the other half is a. Um, Well, a haunted house, so to speak. It's uh, uh, open to the public by an enterprising couple. You know, back in the days when Asylum 49 was a functioning hospital, the, the boardroom was the place in which decisions, both large and small, were made concerning the hospital's future. The... Um, The group that did the tour that I was talking about um, clustered around the board table, which was uh, covered with K2 meters and all the other equipment a paranormal investigator feels they have to have. And they said, row upon row, a white cloaked hooded figure sat in church pews staring back at them. And the tour guide had uh, warned them that those figures sometimes move by themselves. Well, as they sat staring at these figures, um, the um, the host, the owner of the facility, told them about two resident boardroom spirits, a pair of ghostly children by the names of Christian and Jessica. Christian's believed to be uh, two years old. Jessica's about seven, if the psychics uh, got it correct. And he said both children are extremely playful, liking nothing more than to play pranks on visitors and staff alike. And uh, the investigators listened intently to an EVP captured in that same boardroom. And you can hear a young girl's voice say, I'm here now. Boys rasping much the same way that any child does when it's play-acting a monster. 
another EVP, which was very clear. Uh, can quite clearly be heard to say, uh, Mom, and yeah. Well, not all electronic voice phenomena captured at Asylum 49 uh, is quite as benign. The uh, Kim and Cammy, who are the two owners, regularly inform visitors that before leaving, whether they have any spiritual beliefs or not, uh, to speak with intent to uh, any uh, spirits within earshot and tell them in no uncertain terms they are not permitted to accompany them to the car and follow them home. Despite that, one EVP was captured in which an adult female voice quite clearly states, I'm going with you. Another voice says very bluntly, you're dead. Well, these are sobering words. I'm leaving the old hospital under a cloudy early morning sky. Uh, the uh, lead investigator made a point to follow the, uh, the advice of the couple that owned the place, stating quite firmly and forcefully nobody was welcome to accompany him on the long drive back to Colorado. Well, sometimes you don't know if they're with you or not. Well, from Utah, let's go to Lincolnshire in the United Kingdom, RAF Hospital, Nocton Hall. Both a priory and a manor house once occupied the grounds on which the burned-out shell of this manor house once uh, now stands. Its predecessor, Nocton Old Hall, went up in flames in 1834, and so it's then that the mysterious history of Nocton Hall was born in the aftermath of this fire, and tragically seems to have ended its life in the flames of another. First built in 1841 as a home for the Earl of Ripon, Nocton Hall has seen more than its share of trauma over the course of his lifetime. Trauma both the personal and the uh, emotional kind. When the U.S. allied with Great Britain during World War I, the British government allowed the U.S. Army to use Nocton Hall as a place of rest and recuperation for the soldiers returning from the battlefields of Europe. It was a place of peaceful contemplation, rest, reflection for many of these uh, young officers during the last two years of the war. A significant number of these officers would be carrying the burden of post-traumatic stress disorder in addition to the more visible wounds they'd received in combat. But nobody seemed to know what to do with the facility after the war to end all wars was over, so knocked on language for the departed 20 years. And then with a new menace and on the rise in the form of Nazi Germany, it soon became apparent to the air ministry that Britain was likely to find herself embroiled in another European war in the very near future. Seeing the need for more hospital facilities to meet the increasing needs of the burgeoning Royal Air Force ranks, those in charge decided to repurpose Nocton Hall as a medical hospital. By happenstance, there was a large concentration of air bases in the county of Lincolnshire and only one hospital currently capable of serving them all. So this, frankly, made good sense. World War II spread. America entered the war on the side of the Allies, just as she had done during the Great War. Nocton Hall was given over to the U.S. military once more, becoming the U.S. Army's 7th General Hospital. After the surrender of Germany and Japan, Nocton was returned to British hands, becoming number one Royal Air Force Hospital, Nocton Hall. And the site was expanded on with New specialist wards and clinical capacities added to it. By the 1950s, not only was a dental clinic in operation there, but a maternity ward was also installed. And at the height of its productivity, Norton had the Nocton had the capacity for more than 740 patients, making it a major healthcare facility for its time. In 1983, even as the Cold War was reaching its peak, the Thatcher government made the unpopular decision to close down the hospital feeling that they could use the money better someplace else. Fortunately, the U.S. once again ready to step in with an open checkbook and help keep Nocton Hall going, leasing it from the British government as a standby hospital, a facility intended to be kept basically in mothballs, but ready to be brought back to life in the event of a major war. And war did indeed come, not in the expectant form of Red Army tank divisions rolling into West Germany, but rather than the unanticipated guise of Iraqi tanks invading the tiny Persian Gulf nation of Kuwait. Acting on the orders of dictator Saban Hussein, 
after our ambassador said we wouldn't get upset if you invaded. As American allies began to deploy hundreds of thousands of military personnel to the Persian Gulf as part of Operation Desert Shield, which soon became Operation Desert Storm, future Allied casualties were expected to be potentially massive. Armchair pundits at the time predicted the liberation of Kuwait would be a bloodbath. Well, U.S. Air Force medical personnel were flown to Nocton Hall from their home base in California, established what came to be known as the 310th Contingency Hospital. Well, fortunately, that much-feared tsunami of casualties never materialized. Just 35 patients were treated there, easily handled by the 1,300 medical professionals that staffed the hospital. Well, when the Gulf War was over and the need for this particular hospital diminished once more, a skeleton crew of just 13 American service personnel remained stationed at Nocton Hall in order to oversee the upkeep of the facility. But after finally handing it back once more to the British government in 1994, Nocton was finally closed down and abandoned, left to stand empty while a new owner was vainly sought. Well, the wire fence that had been placed around the shell of this grand old house after it was finally closed was uh, penetrated by countless vandals and arsonists throughout the years many of whom defaced its brick walls and stonework of graffiti and set much of what remained of the leftover furniture on fire. So indeed, a series of small fires charred and blackened several parts of the building. And this despicable criminal behavior reached a climax just after midnight, uh, October 24, 2004, when a major fire swept through the hall, completely gutting the manor. Fortunately, the responding firefighters were able to save the structure itself, although the burned, water-weakened roof caved in, collapsed down into the upper floors. It was tragically left a smoldering, ruined shadow of its former glory, unwanted by the living and therefore entrusted into the keeping of its resident ghost. Tenants in the hall throughout the years, usually nurses or, or patients, uh, have long told stories of a phantom gray lady seen gliding silently along the corridors and hallways in early morning hours. Now, why she should haunt this uh, building is a mystery which uh, remains unsolved to this day. But what's by far the most frequently reported ghost in Nocton Hall makes for a much more tragic figure and embodies a dark and disturbing legend. Primarily associated with one specific residential room, the apparition of a young lady has been seen by multiple occupants, her parents always contriving to wake them up at the stroke of 4.30 in the morning. And this miserable young ghost cries forlornly, deeply upset by her mistreatment at the hands of a former lover. And although her identity is not known for certain, the manner of her dress would suggest she was a household servant in a bygone age. And those who paid attention to the words that are interspersed with her sobs have said she weeps so bitterly because the young master of the house, having worked his way into her affections, although some darker versions of the story claim he in fact forced himself on her, took advantage of this naive young lady. When her illicit meetings resulted in the servant becoming pregnant, the young gentleman arranged to have her murdered in cold blood. Now, the question becomes, did it actually happen? Does the grief-stricken soul of a murdered serving girl truly haunt her former room in Nocton Hall? Historical records are not really clear on the matter, but one fascinating incident came attention to the world media in 2013, which may shed some light on the matter. A reporter named Graham Newton of the Grantham Journal published an article titled Ghost Turns Up in Grantham Urban Explorer's Photo. The article recounts the story of two friends who had visited Nocton Hall one night their purpose was to explore the dusty remnants of its corridors and rooms. When an urban explorer named Louise Lewin took a photograph of her companion, John, down in the cellar at about 9.30, she didn't see anything unusual at all, just John posing in a doorway, standing perfectly still in the dim light. It's only discovered after she posted the photo on her social media page that events took a turn toward a bazaar. Friends who uh, posted comments on the Facebook wall thought they could uh, see a figure dressed in white standing next to John on his left side. Looks like she's walking next to John and trying to link arms with him. And when you zoom in, her mouth is open and it looks like she's crying. Well, you can seek out this 
photo online and judge for yourself. Uh, it's believed to be a human figure about five feet high standing next to John in the doorway. And, uh, well, it could be periodolia, the tendency of the human mind to see faces and figures that aren't really there due to interplay of light and shadow on different services. You know, ghosts of a different kind would come to Knockton Hall in November 2013 when a movie crew arrived to shoot scenes for the horror movie The Woman in Black 2, Angel of Death. You're forced to wonder what the ghost of the gray lady and the leaping girl would have made of their black-garbed Hollywood counterpart. According to the British national newspaper, the Daily Mail, Knockton Hall's now listed as one of the UK's 10 most endangered historic buildings. Movement's underway to raise funds in order to save the building and also to hopefully renovate it, restoring it to at least some semblance of its former glory. If the campaign's successful, maybe you'll get a chance to spend the night there. But if you do, choose your room carefully and keep your eyes open when the clock strikes uh, 4.30. You know, this is another case of uh, senseless vandals destroying what they didn't understand and couldn't have. Well, let's go to Luzon Island in the Philippines. Clark Air Base Hospital. You know, one of the world's most heavily populated islands and home to about 50 million people. Luzon is in the heart of the chain of islands known as the Philippines. And the Philippines have, in fact, long played a pivotal role in U.S. military strategy, with U.S. troops and other service personnel being stationary throughout most of the 20th century. In 1903, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order leading to the establishment of U.S. Army Fort Stotzenberg, three miles west of Angelo City. One major reason for choosing this particular location was the grass made good feed for the cavalry horses. Now, at that point in time, military aviation was still in its infancy, but was rapidly gaining interest and growing in popularity in the Army and the Navy. Now, the Air Force wouldn't be um, formed for until 1947. Like many major military bases at the time, Fort Stotzenberg uh, possessed a dedicated airstrip primarily operated by the Signal Corps. 1919, in keeping with the long-established military tradition of naming new installations after prominent members of the service, Army Signal Corps named the fledgling new airfield Clark Field after Signal Corps Major Harold Clark. Well, the American military establishment wasn't blind to the steady growth and increasing reach of the Japanese war machine. 1930s gave way to the 40s. More and more American bomber squadrons were transferred to Clark Field. And following the Japanese sneak attack on the fleet at Pearl Harbor on the morning of uh, Sunday, December 7, 1941, flames of war engulfed the entire Pacific region. Back Clark Field was subject to a massive Japanese airstrike December 8, 1941, with enemy aircraft raining down bombs on the hangars and one way alike with impunity. Now, the raid destroyed much of the American bomber force while it was still on the ground. And after that initial attack, more raids were to follow. One story still makes the rounds, both locally and on a multitude of internet websites, has been proven uh, difficult to substantiate. But it tells of a particularly heavy bombing raid during the Christmas holiday season of 1941. The home plate canteen was supposedly bombed when it was Full to capacity with service personnel enjoying a holiday dinner, the vast majority of whom were said to be killed. And whether that story is true or not is difficult to say, though it uh, seems odd that base personnel had time to enjoy a holiday dinner when Clark Field was evacuated by December 24th of that year. But a number of local eyewitnesses have reported hearing the distant, haunting melodies of periodic swing music playing in the vicinity of what used to be the home plate canteen particularly in the early hours of the morning. And other passers-by have heard the sounds of animated conversation and laughter and the sound of general revelry uh, that will suggest either a party or a similar social gathering is going on. Now, of course, few have had the courage to go in any closer than those who do dare to investigate and they were able to find a source for the inexplicable noises.
There's no question they're hearing, and they just can't find where they're coming from. Well, with defeat almost inevitable, the battered and bloodied American forces ultimately evacuated uh, from Clark, flying out the personnel and as much salvageable equipment as possible on uh, Christmas Eve, 1941. Japanese forces then overran the entire base, occupied it, and made it their own. One fascinating historical footnote, which most people aren't aware of, also dates back to this particular time period. Something truly ugly was born at Clark Field when it was in Japanese hands. The kamikaze, which translates as the divine wind. These uh, one-way suicide missions were first flown out of Clark in 1944. Pilots weaving and twisting their way through the flak screens of U.S. Navy ships before slamming into the decks of the American aircraft carriers and exploding in balls of fire, emulating the unlucky sailors who happened to be in their path. Now, the kamikaze pilots were trained in the small town of Mabokot, that's going to be found just a couple of miles east of Clark Base. And to this day, a historical marker stands outside an anonymous-looking building in the town, commemorating the place in which most pilots prepared themselves for their final fatal mission. It'd be two long years before American forces were in a position to strike back at the Japanese forces occupying both Fort Stotzenberg and Clark Field, launching long-range airstrikes at an intense bombing campaign that lasted from October 44 to January 45. One of a thousand Japanese aircraft were destroyed or disabled during that time, blasted into smoldering wreckage by their American counterpart. And with the writing uh, truly on the wall for the alien Japanese military, the installation was finally retaken by the Amer uh, by uh, U.S. forces after a few uh, fierce firefights uh, in January of '45. After the war ended, Fort Stotzenberg and Clark Field duly amalgamated and became Clark Air Base. It's one of the biggest and arguably the biggest U.S. overseas military installations. Thousands of service personnel and their dependents passed through the establishment throughout the years, bringing with them the full gamut of human emotional experience, both good and bad. In order to meet their medical needs, the brand-new state-of-the-art health care facility was constructed on the base in 1964. Clark Air Base Hospital saw hundreds of babies brought into the world, and as we... Uh, C was also the last stop for many of those who were to leave it. That's why it's, I've often heard it said, a hospital is where you have your best day and your worst day. Thousands of civilian patients were treated there each month, including those who sought care at its flourishing dental practice. During the Vietnam War, Clark was a key strategic base, serving not only as a major hist uh, logistical hub for American forces, but also as First point of medical evacuation for troops being flown out of Vietnam, the Vietnamese theater of operation. Clark's hospital wards would become a temporary home to soldiers who'd been wounded on the battlefield, some grievously. Bullets and blades and punji sticks and artillery shells and countless other weapons were capable of inflicting the most horrific injuries imaginable on the human body and after stabilization by trauma surgeons in the field 10 hospitals, those survivors were shipped back to Clark for more definitive uh, medical care. Well, it's also important to bear in mind the physical wounds of war can be matched if not exceeded by the psychological injuries, which are harder to find because they have it lurking beneath the surface. What we know today is post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, PTSD, was, was uh, referred to in the 1970s as Vietnam Syndrome. The name was different, but the effects, of course, were the same, crippling mental illnesses brought on by the extreme stresses of combat. Clark Air Base Hospital did indeed have a mental health ward, but uh, you have to wonder whether it was able to cope with the sheer volume of emotionally traumatized servicemen returning from the front lines. In fact, entire busloads of new patients would arrive every day. Well, with so much raw emotion, with so much sheer trauma of both the physical and the psychological kind passing through its doors, is it any wonder that a place like Clark Air Base Hospital should become the center of so many ghost stories? Well, when the volcano Mount Pinatubo erupted violently in 1991, tons of volcanic ash was hurled into the air, carried aloft on the winds, and dumped over pretty much all of Clark Air Base. The hospital was hit particularly hard when the last American forces... Uh, Took down the stars and stripes before departing from Clark that same year. What was once a shining example of modern medical practice was, frankly, allowed to languish and rot. To add further injury, insult to injury, looters broke into the hospital and completely gutted it, 
Stripping the room's bare of anything that might even hold the slightest value. This included not only the expensive medical equipment, but fittings and fixtures as simple as door handles and window frames. And like maggots stripping a dead carcass down to its barest bones, the looters kept coming back till absolutely nothing was left but the structure. And, of course, the ghost. Although paranormal activity has been reported at several places on the base grounds, such as the auditory phenomena emanating from the old home plate canteen and the ghost of an airman who supposedly hung himself to avoid falling under Japanese hands and whose lesser spirits now said to haunt the base museum, most of the ghostly episodes seem to center on that former hospital. Now, in an article published in the Philippine Star on Halloween of 2012, uh, entitled Ghost Tourism Draws Visitors to Former U.S. Base, journalist Ding Cervantes delves into some of Clark Air Base's uh, ghostly activity and paranormal folklore. One such haunting involves the old cemetery from which the bodies were moved to the newer American uh, military cemetery on the air base in order to allow for redevelopment of the new building on the site of the former graveyard. Construction of the new building was never completed, partly because, according to Local chief of his, uh, tourism, uh, Guy Hilberto, employees in the area claim to frequently see ghosts or hear unusual sounds coming from the unfinished building. There's no doubt in anybody's mind it's haunted. In Filipino culture, loud noises are sometimes used to scare off ghosts and spirits, something that Cervantes' uh, article uh, says still happens at Clark today in an area that sometimes con uh, contains some uh, rather unique trees. Uh, Hibero also noted that the Trace Marias, the three pine trees named uh, Aguso in the Kapanpangan language found along the road uh, leading to Clark's exit gate at uh, Mabalakot City. I don't know the history of those pine trees, that, uh, but they can't be found anywhere else in Clark, but the road near them seems to have been the site of several accidents. Motorists are prompted to either honk their horns or make the sound of a cross when passing by. That's apparently the way to ward off um, potential uh, disruptions. Lily Hills, the tallest point of land on Clark Air Base, and it saw ferocious combat between Japanese and American ground forces during World War II, served as a scene for a bitter last stand for the Japanese when U.S. soldiers retook the base. As with so many battlefields, the hill held that reputation for being haunted for many years afterwards. And how much of that reputation was truly deserved is impossible to say. But it's interesting to note that after a series of religious cleansing ceremonies, locals no longer regard the Lily Hill as a haunted place today. And although the building that once housed the base hospital is now a gutted shell thanks to looters, mere shadow of the medical facility that cost more than $4.5 million to build, it's far from a peaceful place. Those who live in the area say the apparitions of servicemen long dead sometimes can be seen walking through the ruined interior of the abandoned hospital, both by daylight and in the dark. Whereas many local residents avoid the area at night, a few adventurous folks, usually teenagers I might add, occasionally venture into the area in an attempt to see whether the ghostly uh, tales have any truth to them. But the real experts on the paranormal activity taking place at Clark Air Base the Hospital are those... Uh, Brave souls who prowl its corridors with a flashlight once darkness has fallen. That's the night shift security guards. Guards no longer no, were no strangers to hearing footsteps and voices after dark in the area of the hospital. They've seen the apparition of a female clad entirely in white uh, being seen drifting through the ruins on more than one occasion. Well, blogger and urban explorer Robert Joe's a man who likes to find his own answers. Working on behalf of his National Geographic TV show, I wouldn't go in there. He set out to spend some time inside that clumbering walls of the former hospital building in order to investigate the ghost stories for himself. But before he set foot inside the place, he and his production team interviewed a number of former Clark civilian employees, including one of the night watchmen who had patrolled the building on an hourly basis each evening from after 10 o'clock back in the 1970s when the hospital was still functioning. One of the most compelling reasons for paranormal activity to take place at night, or at least for it to appear to take place at night, is that the world around us is so much quieter and calmer. Sounds travel further without the hustle and bustle of the daytime world as a backdrop. 
and it allows smaller and fainter sounds to be heard more easily. One uh, former Clark Hospital security guard reported hearing the sound of boots striding across the cement floor, followed almost immediately by the sensation of overwhelming coldness blanketing his body when he was patrolling the first floor shortly after midnight. Then this unfortunate guard came face to face with the apparition of what appeared to be an American serviceman, large and uniformed in military camo fatigues. As security guards' uh, stupefied gaze traveled slowly upward from the serviceman's boots to the point just above his neck, he was terrified to realize the only thing missing on this soldier was his face. Well, if this was the classic ghostly encounter, whatever, whether it happened or not is would be in fact or fiction. This would be uh, a point in which the apparition would fade into the nothingness, leaving the startled witnesses to question his own sanity. But in this case, something far more interesting happened. The faceless soldier asked the guard for a cigarette. The security guard handed one over with hands that must surely have been shaking. Ghostly soldier physically took the cigarette, causing an icy chill to run through the guard's fingers. Only then, when the guard had lit the soldier's cigarette for him, the apparition suddenly vanished into the air. Body, cigarette, cloud of smoke and all. Just gone. The same security guard also insists the hospital basement was used as a morgue for the temporary storage of bodies of men, women, and even children who died at the hospital. He's reported hearing plenty of cries for help coming from the darkened corners of that dark uh, basement. But the American personnel who were stationed on the base tell a different story. According to them, bodies never kept down in the Clark basement, uh, Hospital basement at all. They were appropriately buried in a dedicated cemetery on the base, which is still there today. And it's not even close to full capacity, so. Well, based on his own research, Robert Joe's inclined to agree with him. The idea of bodies in the basement just screams urban legend. It was a modern American military hospital, of course. They had to have a regulated, normal method of storing and disposing of bodies. Now, whether these regulations were stretched during times of stress and war is impossible to say, but the official, cha official channels all say no. And you never really... No, but it's much easier to say, oh my God, body's in the basement, and it's easy to see how that rumor could spread and morph and become something sinister and mysterious. Basements are underground, and we do love questioning what happened to the, in the bowels of the earth as some mysterious netherworld. Well, it's very apparent that Robert Joe's a firm skeptic, a stance for which uh, you have to have respect, and he doesn't believe in ghosts, at least not literally. During the interview he did, um, it appeared he didn't think the ghost story surrounding Clark had a paranormal explanation. Instead, he found it more likely to be attributable to cultural factors. He said, to be honest, I think every culture all over the world has superstitious beliefs. In the West, they might be often couched in language and make them sound more religious. He said, I don't differentiate between ghost stories, religious stories, cultural superstitions. They're all part of a cultural fabric that makes up each society, and they're all unique in their own way. He said, I tend to that, uh, find that when you get out into the old world cultures, such as Europe and Asia, these older traditions and beliefs manage to stay alive more vividly than uh, in the West, such as the U.S. But then again, it was more or less a genocide of the old world culture there, so of course, these traditions were lost. European and Judeo-Christian beliefs still run rampant in the more established older societies in New England and down south. And I mean, let's face it, the TV show X-Files had great fun exploring these stories as some sort of American Gothic tradition. So in the Philippines, the Filipinos being influenced from a mix of old world Spanish culture, traditional Filipino culture, are somewhat predisposed to these beliefs. Well, as he said, when he got to the hospital, he grabbed a flashlight and a camera. Headed down to the basement to check things out, alone. And all the credit has to be given to the man for his courage because the basement of the old Clark Hospital is not a pleasant place in which to spend the night. Vandals had broken in numerous times and left most of the surfaces scarred with graffiti, some of it rather threatening and sinister in nature. I mean, let's face it, this place looks like it ought to be haunted, whether it's actually haunted or not. And plenty of animals have created their nests down there and set up homes for the duration. He did say later on he found it uncomfortable. It was late at night. It was a 
dank basement full of cockroaches and bats and who knew what else, and the atmosphere was somewhat suffocating, mostly a combination of dust and, dust and feces, he thought. He also went on to explore what was once the hospital's mental health ward, noting that there was an odd feeling about the place. It just felt off, he said. And he was asked to describe his impression in a little more detail. He said the mental ward was great. It was creepy and overgrown, and there were clear signs of war gamers had been through the place. Telltale plastic BB gun pellets were everywhere. And that combined with the rundown nature of the place and extra graffiti everywhere made it hard to separate the historic artifacts and evidence with what had been created by current generations of people coming through and crafting their own narratives with fake signs and spray paint. You could see that people had painted on signs like morgue or operating room as part of their own ideas of what that space was. and So, as a result, it seemed somewhat unreal. Well, ghost stories centering on this particular hospital aren't restricted to the 21st century. And in fact, the doors appearing to open of their own accord, disembodied voices, ghostly apparitions, bearing wounds and injuries were all talked about by some of the staff over the during the years when the Clark Air Base Hospital was still working, a medical facility. It's difficult to legitimately visit the hospital today, and depending on who uh, who you believe, this is either because of the number of violent, frightening, paranormal incidents that have been followed many visitors inside, or because of health and safety hazards of walking around a building that's basically falling apart. And, of course, security guards still patrol the area and have no hesitation about turning away the unauthorized visitor. Well, one organization had no trouble in getting authorized access is the Atlantic Paranormal Society, or TAPS. In 2007, investigators from sci-fi's TV series Ghost Hunters International flew to uh, Angeles City in order to conduct an overnight investigation of the old Clark Air Base Hospital. reason given for their visit was that security guards were too scared to enter the building due to disembodied voices and screams, crying of babies and the sighting of full-body apparitions. And the show offered an interesting look inside the ramshackle old building. Introduced to the same security guard who later meet with Robert Joe, the ghost hunters were shown the exact same spot it was the guard claims to have encountered the faceless male apparition that wanted a cigarette. A pair of hospital custodians then go on to recount the story of another faceless man who approached them while they were going about their duties on a, an appropriately dark and stormy night. Or at least he appeared to be faceless at first glance. When the pair got a good look at him, uh, the area where his face should have been, instead they saw he had only a skull visible. Well, barely had the investigation started when the ghost hunters start to see mysterious flashes of light on the darkened walls and ceilings of the abandoned uh, uh, building's basement. And those lights would show up on the crew's video recording during their final debrief. Footsteps are heard at the far end of an empty corridor when the team gamely goes down there to investigate. Three knocks are heard out of nowhere. Footsteps immediately cease. A line of graffiti scrawled on one of the walls says, Beware of ghosts. And that, at that point, sounded like good advice. Well, we're going to pause our investigation at Clark Air Base Hospital because we were out of time. We'll finish up this um, investigation tomorrow. Till then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying, Have a truly Great evening.